Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's half past six on the 7th of June, 1919, a cold Saturday night in suburban Melbourne, and Alexander Eastman is making his way through Paran to Hawkesburn Railway Station. Due to turn 21 next birthday, he's a dapper bloke, just five foot three, but sturdy and dressed in a good blue suit, vest with silver watch chain, collar and tie, felt hat and oxblood coloured boots with a gabardine overcoat to protect against the chill. A gold ring glitters on the little finger of his left hand and Alexander carries a Gladstone bag that contains the clothes he'll need at Kuwirup, a country town some 40 miles southeast of Melbourne. Alexander is to stay there the rest of the weekend with his maternal aunt Elizabeth, who's now in her early 70s. As he intends to get a bit of shooting in while he's down there, his bag also contains the rifle that Alexander has borrowed from his brother Herman. Reaching Hawksburn Station, Alexander meets Annie Smith, another of his maternal aunts, who he's travelling with to Kuwirup. They board a suburban train and he sits with her in the ladies' compartment before they change at Caulfield for the service that will take them to their destination. Annie, who's in her late 50s, hasn't got the best eyesight, but she's in good hands because Alexander is a sensible bloke of temperate habits who takes only the occasional glass of beer. As they draw close to Dandenong Station, where the train will make a short stop, Alexander tells Annie that he's going to try to find a mate he's arranged to meet on board. 
Soon after, Annie sees her nephew near a carriage door with a man and then out on the Dandenong platform. Then, she's not sure where he's got to. Coming into their destination, Kuirup Station, Annie goes to find Alexander. But he's not in the smoking carriage or anywhere else on the train or platform and no one she asks can tell her where he is. Retrieving their luggage, Annie tells herself that he must have missed getting back on board at Dandenong and she assumes he'll follow on the next service. What she can't imagine as the locomotive steams away from the Kuirup station, continuing its journey southeast through the moonless night, is that her nephew, Alexander Eastman, is literally still on the train. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. This episode was suggested by listener, show supporter and military and local history buff, Andy Charlie Nanos, who lives near where these events took place. These days, the handsome heritage-listed Currumburra railway station on the former South Gippsland line stands empty and unused. But in the early 20th century, it was a busy transport hub and 100 years ago, it was briefly thrust into the national spotlight when a body was discovered there in circumstances that strayed beyond the suspicious and into the surreal. The case sounded like something from a detective novel and it generated headlines across the country. A brief survey of newspapers available on the National Library of Australia's Trove database gives us The Currumburra Mystery, Detectives Puzzled in the Ballarat Star. Brisbane's Daily Standard went with Dead on Roof, Victorian Railway Mystery. New South Wales country newspaper The Riverine Herald's take was The Train Mystery, Needs a Sherlock Holmes, Police are Mystified. And for a few days, detectives, reporters and the public were baffled. But then an official cause of death was established and with it came a police theory that, while outlandish, also seemed the only explanation for the young man's death. After that, though, the story faded from popular memory. As far as I've been able to find on Trove and newspapers.com, the most recent article about the case was back in 1950 when crime writer Hugh Buggy recapped the public details and loose ends for the Argus. He concluded that feature by writing, quote, Some reader may be able to propound a new and reasonable theory. A century on from the events of the 7th of June 1919, that's what I think I have. A new and reasonable theory about what might have happened to Alexander Eastman. Alexander Eastman's numerous arts played a significant role in his life, and that as shown by records found on Ancestry.com.au, was due to two tragedies suffered by his family just before and just after the turn of the century. 
Alexander Eastman was born in the second half of 1898 at Gunong in north-central Victoria. He was the fourth child of town butcher Alexander Eastman Sr. and his wife Sarah Smith. The year after little Alexander was born, in August 1899, his father took ill and died at the age of just 29. His death left Sarah with four children under the age of six. Then, in May 1901, at just 30 years old, she died. What happened then isn't certain, though it seems likely that Alexander, his two brothers and one sister were cared for by their maternal grandparents and their mother's sisters. In any event, in 1919, Alexander was living with two of these aunts, Annie Smith, then in her late 50s, and Lavinia Smith, in her mid-40s at a house in Westbourne Street in Paran. And like the father he'd never known but had been named for, Alexander had gone into the butchering business. It was a hard job and on Saturday the 7th of June, he'd gotten up at 3am to go to work, putting in a long day before collecting his week's pay and returning to the Paran house at about 3.45pm. There, he had a bath and ate the dinner that Lavinia had cooked before he headed to the train to meet Annie. At about 10pm that night, as Annie, now at her other sister Elizabeth's place in Rup, was trying not to worry too much about Alexander, Further southeast along the Gippsland line at Currumborough Railway Station, the train's fireman John Miles noticed something strange as his locomotive came to a stop beneath a signal light. Above his head, a dark shape protruded over the edge of the concertina buffer that surrounded the forward door of the train's first passenger carriage. John Miles initially thought some fool had thrown something onto the train from one of the many overhead bridges on this stretch of line. Climbing up with a lamp, he saw the truth. A man lay on top of the carriage. He wasn't moving, and when John Miles felt his neck, there was no pulse. John Miles alerted railway authorities and a porter summoned Constable Cousin Gilbert Marchese from the Currumbara Police Station. All of this took the better part of an hour, with the policeman's handwritten report found in the Public Records Office of Victoria stating that he reached the railway station around 11pm. There, he saw a train employee named Robert Jolly standing on top of the train's first carriage. Jolly shouted, quote, There is a dead man up here. Constable Marchese climbed up and made an initial inspection of the corpse. Lying face down, the dead man's head, which was towards the engine, rested against the iron end of the concertina buffers and was about 18 inches lower than his feet, which were slightly apart and raised because the carriage roof slanted upwards towards a dome at its middle. 
The dead man's hands were thrust deep into the pockets of his overcoat and both arms were beneath his body. Under his face, a small pool of blood. Constable Marchese saw that this blood wasn't clotted and, touching the man's skin, he found the body was warm and supple. Whoever the poor fellow was, he hadn't long left this world. Helped by railway workers, Constable Marchese brought the corpse down and carried it to the guard's room on the platform. There, he made a closer inspection. The dead man's face was dark with soot and grime, but Constable Marchese could see a gash about an inch long on the chin. Taking the man's hands from his pockets was to see that they, too, were dark with ash and grease. The man was well-dressed, blue suit, vest, collar and tie, oxblood-coloured boots, though he didn't have a hat. Constable Marchese and a local medico named Dr Green made a closer inspection of the body. Apart from the cut on the chin, the only sign of violence they could see was a slight mark on the left breast. Constable Marchese questioned passengers and railway workers who'd been kept at the station. The only person with information about the dead man was a second-class passenger named Thomas Marchbank, who was a 29-year-old sawmiller from East Caulfield. Constable Marchese's ears surely pricked up because, to Melburnians in 1919, Marchbank was a well-known surname. In recent years, James Marchbank had played for Carlton and Hawthorne football clubs, while his younger half-brother, William Marchbank, had taken the field for Carlton and Fitzroy. The man now talking to Constable Marchese, he was James's younger half-brother and full brother to William. Thomas Marchbank said that on arriving at Currumburra, he'd heard there was a corpse atop the carriage and curiosity had compelled him to climb up and take a look. As it turned out, He'd seen the man earlier that night. Marchbank told Constable Marchese the dead man was a chap he'd encountered two stations this side of Dandenong, which would have been Lynbrook. While the train was stopped there, Marchbank, looking for a bag he'd misplaced, had gone along the platform and gotten onto the first carriage, the one on which the dead man had been found. This carriage was split into two compartments, first class at the front, second class to the rear, with a corridor running along the length of the carriage. But a locked door in the middle of this corridor prevented passenger movement between the two compartments. Thomas Marchbank said he'd seen the man standing by this door, and they had been the only two people in the carriage. When Marchbank asked the man if he'd seen his bag, the fellow had acted oddly and not responded. Marchbank had then said to him, Anyway, this is a first-class carriage. Then he, that is Marchbank, ran off the train to return to his own second-class carriage. That was all he knew. But his information would prove crucial to the police's theory of what happened. 
Constable Marchese had the dead man taken to Currumborough's Austral Hotel. There, he searched the clothes more thoroughly. This is what he found. Two return second-class tickets to Hawksburn. Two watches, one gold and one silver with a chain, a sturdy pocket knife, three handkerchiefs, a pair of gold cufflinks and three half pennies and a farthing piece. But the most important find was a motorcycle certificate of registration in the name of Alexander Eastman of Westbourne Street, East Paran. While this almost certainly identified the dead man, Melbourne police would need to find someone to make a formal identification. On Sunday, the 8th of June, 1919, Senior Constable Bartley of Currumburra Police telephoned the Melbourne CIB to inform them a dead man had been discovered on the train and provided the name and details on the motorcycle registration. But Bartley told his Melbourne colleagues that he reckoned the deceased was about 38 years old. Police from Armadale Station were dispatched to the Westbourne Street Paran address to speak with Lavinia Smith, who told them as far as she knew, Alexander had accompanied her sister Annie to Kuwirup. But with phones at country homes then rare, she had no way of knowing whether they'd arrived at their destination. Kuwirup police would need to visit in person. In the meantime, Melbourne police contacted Alexander's older brother, Herman. On hearing the dead man was about 38 years old, he said it couldn't be Alexander, who was half that age. The matter would need to be settled the following day when Constable Marchese was to bring the body back to Melbourne for formal identification and so the city's pathologist, Dr Crawford Henry Mollison, could conduct an autopsy. On Monday the 9th of June, Kuwirup police interviewed Annie Smith at her sister's place and she told them how she and Alexander had made their way on the train and how she'd last seen him at Dandenong Station. Annie's heart had to be sinking by this stage but beyond the dead man looking 38 years old there were other things to give her hope that it wasn't Alexander who'd been found on top of the train. Her nephew, she said, had been wearing a gold band ring on the little finger of his left hand that was engraved with his initials A-G-E. He'd also been carrying more than just a few coins. Alexander, who didn't have a bank account, had been paid that day and had also recently sold a saddle for four pounds. While these discrepancies may have given Annie some slender hope, to the police they suggested foul play, and so Detective Patrick Sullivan of Melbourne's CIB went to Currumburra on Monday night to investigate further. This police officer was pretty high profile at this time, having the previous year played an important role in solving a horrific double murder, which we'll be exploring in an upcoming Side Note episode. 
Detective Sullivan re-interviewed Annie Smith, Thomas Marchbank and railway workers. Apart from the cause of death, which was up to Dr Mollison to determine, the big questions were how and why the dead man had gotten up on top of the carriage. From inspecting the carriage, it was obvious to Detective Sullivan that he'd climbed up himself because it was almost impossible for anyone to have hauled him up there. But if the man had tried climbing up there when the train was stopped at a station, he would have been spotted by railway staff or the driver and fireman. That meant he'd shimmied up the side of the moving train with precious little purchase for his hands and feet. This also seemed unlikely, but Detective Sullivan's inquiries soon revealed a solution to at least this part of the mystery. Until the Nyora station, there had been an additional van carriage between the locomotive and the first carriage. This van had stairs that led to the roof to allow rail workers to light lamps up there. At Nyora, which was midway between Kuirup and Kurumbara, the van had been removed and the engine and first carriage coupled. So the man had been able to get onto the roof of the moving train relatively easily and he'd done it before the Nyora station. Another piece of the puzzle presented itself that day when a railway ganger named William Ridd, who was in charge of the line between Clyde and Delmore, found a hat beside the tracks not far from an overhead bridge. Thinking it belonged to a driver or fireman, he handed it in to railway officials. But after reading newspaper articles about the dead man, he went out to do a bit of sleuthing for himself at the overhead bridge where he found that something had knocked soot off the bottom edge of its brickwork right over the centre of the track. He told police that it looked as though something not very hard had glanced the bridge, such as the hat of a man sitting upright on a train carriage. By now, Constable Marchese had reached Melbourne with the body and Herman Eastman, no doubt wondering how the Currumburra police got the age so wrong, had the sad job of positively identifying the dead man as his younger brother. But how had Alexander Eastman died? And why had he climbed onto the roof of a moving train? Melbourne's pathologist Dr Mollison answered the first question when he autopsied Alexander Eastman on Tuesday the 10th of June. He recorded the deceased had been in good physical health. The hands were grimy on the palms, with Dr Mollison concluding this was the result of him climbing along the carriage roof. Alexander's face was stained with blood from the nostrils and mouth, and there was some dried blood on the chin near a horizontal lacerated wound about an inch in length that also had abrasions around it. 
but there were more injuries than those that had been detected by Constable Marchese and Dr Green at Currumburra. There were two abrasions near the right eyebrow with slight bruising beneath and more abrasions on the bridge and tip of the nose, right nostril and upper lip. Dr Mollison also found bruising on the upper front chest. As for what had killed Alexander Eastman, the pathologist had no doubt. The dead man's lungs were deeply congested and the throat and his airways contained a fair amount of partially digested food that smelled of beer. Dr Mollison concluded, quote, Death was due to suffocation, the result, in my opinion, of the regurgitation of food into the air passage. The wounds that I have described had nothing to do with his death. They did not cause his death. They were probably caused by his falling forward on to his head. Now that it was known definitively how Alexander Eastman had died, Detective Sullivan formulated a theory as to why he'd gone up on the roof and how this had killed him. Detective Sullivan thought Alexander had gotten out of the carriage at Dandenong to see his mate. There, he'd had some beer and then, for some reason, most likely in a panic because the train was starting to pull away, he'd boarded the wrong carriage. Realising he was in a first-class compartment, he tried to make his way along the corridor to second class, only to find the door was locked. Then Thomas Marchbank had come along, asking about his bag, and said, anyway, this is a first-class carriage, before he hurried off the train. Alexander Eastman, Detective Sullivan believed, had probably feared that Thomas Marchbank was a railway inspector who'd gone to fetch backup and that they would return and confront him for travelling in first class on a second class ticket. So Alexander Eastman had gone through the carriage's sliding door, through the concertina and found himself at a dead end on the van, still then between the engine and the carriage. He'd climbed the stairs onto the roof, his intention being either to hide or to get back along the train and then climb down into second class. Detective Sullivan thought he'd done this around Clyde because about 300 yards from there was where his hat had been found near the overhead bridge with the scuff mark. The 7th of June had been a moonless night and railway workers said it would have been impossible to see overhead bridges looming up out of the darkness. This led Detective Sullivan to think that Alexander had been sitting up and the bridge had just clipped the top of his hat and sent it flying, sparing him by mere inches from having his head knocked off. Understandably frightened, he'd then tried to change position to flatten himself, but the swaying of the train and the slope of the roof had sent him pitching forwards. Alexander had hit his chin and, perhaps dazed and disorientated, started to vomit, with his hands jammed into his overcoat pockets 
and his head significantly lower than his body, he was unable to help himself and this contributed to him suffocating on the contents of his stomach. Detective Sullivan wasn't backwards about coming forwards with his theory. And the Age newspaper's 11th of June update on the case was simply headlined, The Mystery Solved. As bizarre as the theory sounded, this explanation did best fit the facts as they were known. But it also did overlook some inconvenient loose ends, namely the ring and the money. As the Argus newspaper had reported the previous day, quote, A puzzling feature about the case which seems to suggest foul play is the fact that a gold band ring having Eastman's initials, A-G-E, engraven upon it, which Miss Smith says he was wearing on the little finger of the left-hand dandenong, was missing when the body was found. He had had the ring for some considerable time and it fitted too well to permit of its dropping off. On leaving Melbourne, also, he had much more money than found in his pocket. Yet, as the Argus had added, any robbery theory was weakened because Alexander's gold and silver watches and his gold cufflinks had not been taken. Perhaps the coroner's inquest could shed some light on these questions. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was held two weeks later on the 25th of June 1919 at the City Morgue before Deputy Coroner Alexander Phillips with all the principal witnesses and investigators giving sworn statements. Engine fireman John Miles told of finding the body. Railway ganger William Ridd recounted the discovery of the hat and the scuff mark on the bottom edge of the bridge. And Dr Mollison gave evidence of what had been revealed by the autopsy. Thomas Marchbank elaborated on his account. That night, he said, he'd boarded a second-class compartment at Caulfield bound for Currumburra. Like Alexander Eastman, he'd arranged to meet someone on board. Quote, I got out of the train at Oakley as I had to meet a Mr. Bromley and I went back and found him and rode with him to Dandenong. When the train stopped at Dandenong, I was going to get my bag and I could not find it and then went back to Mr. Bromley and I knew then it must be in the first carriage and after Dandenong, I went along the train and I got in the first carriage and I met a man standing up in the carriage near the door and I said to him, I lost my bag, did you see a bag anywhere? 
I pushed the door and then I ran out. The man was standing up near the door that divides the corridor from the compartment. The man did not answer me and he appeared confused. He did not seem silly. I thought he might have been thinking I was accusing him of taking my bag. I did not know the man. He was dressed in a dark suit and was wearing a thick silver watch chain. He was young and clean shaved. He had a soft hat on the same shape as the one produced. There was no one else in the compartment with him. On arrival at Currumburra, I heard that there was a man on the roof of the carriage. I got up and had a look and saw the man there and he was the same man that I spoke to in the carriage. He was lying on his face with his arms under him and his feet over the dome of the carriage and his head in the concertina part of the carriage. I was there when the constable arrived. Marchbank continued. I am sure that by the clothes that the man I saw in the carriage was the same that I saw on the carriage. I can swear to the thick watch chain that he was wearing. There was nothing to prevent the man from getting from the compartment I saw him in and getting down the platform the same as I did. Clarifying the sequence of events for the deputy coroner, Marchbank now said, quote, It is possible that I might have made a mistake about the man. I identified the man in the casualty room when he was turned over and then I saw the watch chain. I did not see the man in any other part of the carriage. Marchbank continued, The carriage I got in was part first and part second and was divided by a door and that door was locked. I did not notice a van between the carriage and the engine. At Currumburra, that car was next to the engine. I could not form any opinion how the man got up there where he was found. There was something about the man that made me take notice of him. He did not answer me and I thought it was funny. At the inquest, Herman Eastman said his brother had always been in good health had not suffered from nerves, had never said anything about suicide, and would drink a glass of beer at most. He also identified the friend Alexander had gone to see on the train. Quote, I know Rupert Morrison, who was my brother's mate. He told me that he travelled on the second division of the train, and that if he did not see my brother at Caulfield, he was to see him at Dandenong, and that he went on the second division of that train, and my brother went on the first, and it was quite right if my brother had gone along the train to look for him. Why Rupert Morrison wasn't called at the inquest isn't known. Clearly Herman had been able to find him. But Detective Patrick Sullivan would testify, quote, I could not find any mate of his. Other than that, the detective outlined the basics of his theory for the deputy coroner, that Alexander Eastman, perhaps befuddled by a bit of beer, had gotten on the wrong carriage and, perhaps spooked by Thomas Marchbank, had climbed up to the roof where he'd lost his hat to the bridge fallen down, become sick, and suffocated. Quote, I am quite satisfied from my inquiries that there was no foul play in the matter. Yet, railway worker Frederick Girdlestone told the inquest, quote, I know the Dandenong station. There is no time to go away to get a drink. 
There is no license on the station. It is common for passengers to carry drink on the train. Reaffirming her nephew's sobriety, Alexander's aunt, Lavinia Smith, told the inquest that he didn't show any sign of drink when he came home from work that Saturday afternoon and that he ate the dinner she'd prepared without taking any ale. She also said there was nothing to drink in her nephew's bag. Lavinia testified to Alexander's calm character. Quote, He was a strong-minded lad and not weak in any way and not likely to get excited at all. I do not think that he had got some drink and wanted to avoid my sister. When he travelled with his aunt, he was always very careful of her on account of her sight and I cannot form any theory how he got where he was found. As for the money, quote, I cannot tell what money he took with him, but he never travelled with little money. I think he would have a few pounds on him when he went away. Constable Marchese was recalled and stated, quote, The body was searched at the Austral Hotel and Senior Constable Barclay was with me. From the time I started with the body, I was never alone at any time. He stood by his statement that the body had been found without a gold ring and with only a few coins in a pocket. Quote, When I searched him, the pockets did not appear to have been interfered with in any way. There was no appearance that anybody had picked his pocket. With all the evidence heard, Deputy Coroner Alexander Phillips delivered the only finding left open to him. Quote, I say that on the 7th day of June 1919 at Currumborough Railway Station, Alexander Eastman was found dead on the roof of a railway carriage, having died from suffocation from the inhalation of vomited matter. There is no evidence to show where or how he got on the carriage, but I am of the opinion he got there by his own act. So, what of the loose ends? First, the alcohol. While Lavinia swore Alexander didn't have alcohol in his bag and railway worker Frederick Girdlestone said there wasn't liquor served at Dandenong Station, the deceased's mate, Rupert Morrison, might have had some beer with him and it's entirely possible they imbibed. What's trickier to explain is the disappearance of the ring and the money. Could the police or railway workers have stolen them from Alexander's dead body on top of the train? It is possible. An hour elapsed before Constable Marchese arrived on the scene and the fact that Thomas Marchbank could just climb up to have a look indicates various people had access to the body. But Alexander Eastman's hands were deep in his pockets and both arms were beneath his torso. So how to surreptitiously slip a ring from a finger in such circumstances? And how to take cash from an overcoat or vest pocket? Further, if you were going to go to that trouble and incur that risk, 
wouldn't you also take the gold and silver watch and gold cufflinks? What also didn't make a lot of sense was why a sensible and law-abiding young man would take such drastic action as to climb on top of a moving train to avoid being rousted by a railway inspector. And not even a railway inspector, but a man who might be a railway inspector. Was Alexander Eastman so affected by alcohol that he overreacted to such an extent? Dr. Mollison's autopsy didn't detect any substantial quantity of beer in his stomach. And while Alexander's aunts and brother were no doubt biased, the police found nothing to suggest he was a drunkard or prone to erratic behaviour. Certainly, prosecutions for travelling first class on second class tickets were common, with dozens of such cases recorded in Melbourne's newspapers that year. But the fines were small, typically a few shillings, usually less than half a pound, including court costs. Would Alexander Eastman have gone to such lengths to avoid such a small punishment? Lavinia testified that her nephew travelled frequently by train, as did most Melburnians at this time. So what he and everyone knew was that being on top of a carriage, then as now, put you at huge risk of being hit by an overhead bridge. Even more so on a dark night. Then there was the danger of simply falling off. Detective Sullivan's theory had Alexander Eastman possibly risking his life, but definitely ruining his nice clothes to avoid maybe being prosecuted for travelling in the wrong carriage by a man who might be a railway inspector. And why would Alexander Eastman have thought Thomas Marchbank was a railway inspector? If he was, wouldn't he have identified himself as such there and then and demanded to see a ticket rather than running off the train to procure assistance? And if Alexander was trying to get back to a second-class carriage, why was he found facing forwards towards the engine? In his testimony at the inquest, train fireman John Miles had speculated the dead man might have gotten up onto the roof so he could watch him and the driver work. This was hardly likely, but Alexander Eastman could have been trying to get to them for safety when he died. Detective Patrick Sullivan's theory relied on the word of just one man, Thomas Marchbank. And, as recorded in the police reports and coronial testimony, there were discrepancies in what he said. Marchbank initially said he'd recognised the dead man on top of the carriage, even though he was face down and covered in soot. Then, at the inquest, he said he'd identified him when he was turned over in the casualty room. What was striking, in my opinion, was what stood out to Marchbank. Quote, He was dressed in a dark suit and was wearing a thick silver watch chain. Quote, I am sure that by the clothes that the man I saw in the carriage was the same that I saw on the carriage. 
I can swear to the thick watch chain that he was wearing. Quote, I identified the man in the casualty room when he was turned over and then I saw the watch chain. In his brief encounter with Alexander Eastman, Thomas Marchbank had sure seemed to take a lot of notice of that silver watch chain. And this was when he was supposedly looking for his lost bag. But Marchbank was a second-class passenger, and he made no mention of his pal, Mr. Bromley, being a first-class passenger in the first carriage. He twice said he had to, quote, go back to see Bromley. If this was the case, why would Marchbank have been looking for his bag in the first carriage's first-class compartment, which, thanks to that locked corridor door, wasn't accessible from the rest of the train. Given that Marchbank was the only witness to Alexander Eastman's supposed movements before his death, you'd think he might have been made to explain these inconsistencies. Yet, he wasn't. Was that because Detective Sullivan, two weeks before the inquest, had already told the press that he'd solved the mystery? and that his solution relied on the veracity of Marchbank's testimony? Detective Sullivan's theory also didn't necessarily explain why the dead man's body had borne other abrasions and bruises. Dr Mollison had suggested that they'd been inflicted when he fell forwards on top of the train carriage. Very possibly, but might they also have been inflicted some other way, such as... A robbery gone wrong. How about this for what 1950s crime writer Hugh Buggy hoped for in a quote, new and reasonable theory? Under financial stress due to business troubles and gambling debts, criminally minded Thomas Marchbank sees well dressed Alexander Eastman gold ring flashing, silver watch chain shining, get back onto an otherwise empty first-class carriage at Dandenong. Thinking he's rich and an easy mark, he follows him and confronts him in the corridor. With his back to a locked door, Alexander Eastman can't go anywhere. Thomas Marchbank demands his money and valuables. His victim begins to comply, handing over his paper money but missing the few coins in the bottom of a pocket. Taking off his gold ring, he hands that over too. But then he sees his chance to get away. A fight ensues. Marchbank lands a few blows that cut and bruise his victim before Alexander Eastman manages to get past and scramble away. Giving chase, Marchbank gets to the end of the carriage and the concertina buffer, but finds no one. His victim is gone. The most logical assumption might be that the young bloke has jumped from the train. Now Thomas Marchbank has to decide what to do. If his victim has survived the jump, it'll be a long time before he can raise the alarm. Marchbank's safest bet at the next station is to move back to his second-class carriage and keep on to his destination, Currumburra. Chances are 
he'll get there and be able to slip away before the bloke gets to a police station. Then, when Marchbank gets to Currumburra, he hears there's a body on the roof. Now his victim's disappearance makes strange sense, but he has to know for sure. Seeing that the dead man is the same man he robbed, he wonders whether anyone saw them together and how he might explain that. So Marchbank comes up with the story we've heard. My theory may sound as far-fetched as the one proposed by Detective Patrick Sullivan back in 1919. And to be fair, Detective Sullivan was able to talk to Thomas Marchbank in person and get a feel for him as a witness. Clearly, we can't do that. But what Detective Sullivan couldn't do 100 years ago was see what the future held for Thomas Marchbank. And we can do that. Five months after Alexander Eastman died, Thomas Marchbank made headlines all over Australia. Perth's Daily News went with this. Highwaymen caught in the act. Bank managers escape. Adelaide's Daily Herald put it this way. Alleged robbery under arms. On the afternoon of the 30th of October 1919 in central Victoria, Charles Tolstrup, a national bank manager, was alone in a horse buggy driving himself and deposits from Broadford to the branch he operated in Kilmore. Approaching a motor car parked on the side of the road, a man stepped into Tolstrup's path and asked him for a match. But suspicious, the bank manager drove on, and that was a good thing too because he just avoided being bashed and robbed at gunpoint. The man on the road, Albert Hawker, a Melbourne driver for hire, didn't want a match. His job was to stop Charles Tolstrup so that Thomas Marchbank, hiding behind a nearby tree, could execute his plan to relieve the bank manager of the £1,000 he believed he was carrying. According to Albert Hawker, Marchbank was carrying two lumps of wood. He was going to use one to foul the buggy's spokes so the bank manager couldn't escape. He was going to use the other one to smash the man over the head. And if that wasn't enough to subdue Tolstrup, then Marchbank also had a loaded revolver. The highway robbery plan fell to pieces when the bank manager didn't stop. And it immediately went from bad to worse when a police car came down the road. Revolver in hand, Marchbank bolted into the bush with four local cops giving chase. They found him after an hour's search 40 feet up a tree. When he climbed down and was taken into custody, Marchbank still had the revolver with four chambers loaded and 24 rounds of spare ammo. He apparently told the arresting police, quote, I was just going to shoot myself. Who'd have thought it would ever come to this? Marchbank was taken to Kilmore Police Station and charged with attempted armed robbery and remanded in custody. According to police, they had spotted Marchbank 
acting oddly in the car as it cruised through Broadford and followed him and Albert Hawker as they followed the bank manager's buggy. In custody, police said, Marchbank made a full confession in which he said he had financial troubles on account of business problems and horse racing debts. About three weeks previously, on the Ballarat train, Marchbank said he'd met a man who called himself Dan Price. This bloke said he knew that bank manager Charles Tolstrup regularly transported about £1,000 from Kilmore each Thursday afternoon. So Marchbank, Price and another fella, alias Darkey, hatched a plan to stick up the bank manager on the 23rd of October when he arrived at the Broadford Hotel and then make their getaway in a motor car. But their scheme fell through when their car broke down on the way north from Melbourne. A week later, in Melbourne, Marchbank hired motor car driver Albert Hawker to drive him, Price and Darkey up to Kilmore and Broadford so they could try again. When Marchbank's partners in this planned crime didn't show up, he brought Hawker into his scheme and they set out from Melbourne. As they drove through Kilmore, Marchbank ducked down because he was well known in the area and didn't want to be seen. Near Broadford, he got out and hid the revolver in some roadside bushes. In town, they watched Charles Tolstrup leave on his buggy, tailed him for a while, then overtook him and parked farther down the road. While they waited, Marchbank tried to convince Hawker to take the revolver and play a bigger role in the robbery, but Hawker refused. Marchbank also allegedly told police that in the end he hadn't tried to rob the bank manager because his conscience had gotten the better of him and he'd never intended the man any sort of harm. The police faced a dilemma. Thomas Marchbank hadn't actually gotten the chance to try to rob, threaten or hurt Charles Tolstrup. So when Marchbank faced court in Kilmore on the 13th of November 1919, the police dropped the charge of attempted armed robbery and substituted a lesser one of being a suspected person and loitering in a public place with the intention of committing a felony. Even to this, Marchbank, now lawyered up, pleaded not guilty and claimed that the police account of his confession was a pack of lies. He told the court that under the influence of drink, he'd been duped into the robbery scheme by Albert Hawker, who'd been working with the cops to entrap him. For his part, Hawker said that despite having prior convictions, he was now an honest and innocent citizen who'd had no idea that Marchbank was planning a robbery until they were at the roadside. Then, he said, his real intention in stepping out onto the road to ask for a match had been to warn the bank manager to keep going rather than to stop him. Hawker also denied he'd been given a deal by police that would see him escape prosecution in return for false evidence against Marchbank. It was a case of he said, he said, the police said. 
In the end, the judge didn't believe Thomas Marchbank, who was found guilty and fined £20 plus £8.5 costs. That's the equivalent of $2,300 today, but a better measure was that it then amounted to what the average man would earn in two months. Regardless, Marchbank paid the fine in full immediately and, as the age reported, quote, left the court with his friends. Over the years to come, Thomas Marchbank wouldn't again be involved in such a brazen attempted crime, though he would see the inside of a courtroom occasionally. In 1927, he and a business partner were successfully sued over payment relating to a dodgy timber deal, and a year later, he beat a charge of having driven a stolen truck. Two years later, Thomas Marchbank was involved in a more serious truck incident. On the 30th of July, 1930, driving on the Hillsville Road, two miles from Coldstream, he lost control of a truck which overturned. Marchbank escaped with a cut face and shock. His passenger, 36-year-old Reuben Fielder, wasn't so lucky and was killed instantly. As it was a one-vehicle accident on a remote stretch of road, there's no way to know what happened, and it should be noted that police laid no charges and there was no suggestion that he was under the influence of alcohol or had driven negligently. In 1938, Marchbank had six cattle seized from a property to settle debts that he owed, and taking the matter to court, he lost. But by 1944, Marchbank was on the straight and narrow, working as an eggboard inspector in the Gippsland area, and he seemingly had no further troubles with the law. In later life, he retired to Ascot Vale in Melbourne's northwest. While he'd allegedly had financial problems related to horse racing earlier in his life, by 1959, Thomas Marchbank was doing well out of the GGs and owned a promising two-year-old galloper named Mizami. Not that he got to enjoy the rewards because that year he had another car accident, but this one left him with serious injuries. Awaiting a damages settlement, Marchbank, for financial reasons, temporarily transferred ownership of Mizami to a nephew, just as the horse was starting to win races. Thomas Marchbank didn't resume ownership, dying on the 10th of May 1960. His name would appear in the age one last time soon after when a legal battle over ownership of Mazami, now worth £8,000, reached Victoria's Supreme Court. So what had really happened in 1919 when Thomas Marchbank's name first made the age in relation to the death of Alexander Eastman? Was he just an innocent bystander and helpful witness? Or was he, on this night, the same calculating thug who'd soon plan to rob a bank manager? We'll never know. 
But what seems certain to me is that if Thomas Marchbank had faced court for planning a violent highway robbery five months before Alexander Eastman died, his account of events would have faced far more intense scrutiny. While we can't know for sure why Alexander Eastman was on top of that train, what we can know is that his aunts, Annie and Lavinia, never forgot him. On the sixth anniversary of his death, they placed this notice in the Ages in Memoriam column. Quote, In loving memory of our dear nephew, Alexander Eastman died 7th June 1919. Just when his life was brightest, just when his hopes were best, just in the pride of his manhood, he was taken away to rest. Too dearly loved to be forgotten, for true love never dies. The dearest spot on earth to us is where our nephew lies. It was signed, his sorrowing aunts, Annie and Livy. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at iTunes, and be sure to subscribe so that you get every episode as soon as it's released. For more information about this story and stories from other episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.